This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. Welcome to At The Bench, the neonatal physician scientist podcast where we are incubating discoveries. I'm Dr. David McCulley, and I'm co-hosting this program with Dr. Betsy Crouch and Dr. Misty Good. We're aiming to highlight outstanding people, their cutting-edge research, the hottest techniques, and career development for NICU fellows and faculty, and anyone who wants to talk about how to take results from experiments and use them to improve babies' health. This is a new edition of the Incubator Podcast, now at the bench. We are all neonatologist scientists with different areas of scientific expertise. We are also passionate about inspiring and training the next generation of researchers with dual clinical and investigational skills. Welcome back to At The Bench, the physician scientist podcast of The Incubator. I'm David McCulley and one of the co-hosts of this program. And hi, I'm Betsy Crouch. I'm also a co-host of At The Bench. I'm a neonatologist at University of California, San Francisco. David, you want to introduce our guest for today? Yeah, so today we're going to continue with our introduction program where we're interviewing one of our own co-hosts. Today we're excited to be able to interview Dr. Misty Good. Misty, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Misty Good. I'm the Division Chief of Neonatology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm honored to be on the podcast today. Well, we're thrilled to get to interview you. I have to say that that um, I sort of knew who you were even before I got to talk with you as a friend and colleague from your clinical trial for NEC and doing um, some of your therapies that we're going to talk about today and also your outstanding social media presence. So for all of these and, and your leadership qualities, we're excited to you know hear more about your journey and about what inspires you today. So we always like to start by talking about your uh, career trajectory, and notably, you're now the division chief and principal investigator of a lab, but I do know that being a basic scientist wasn't always your career plan. How did you get interested in science? Well, I first joined a pediatric surgery lab as a second-year neonatology fellow when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, and I had no background at all in science. And so I spent the first two weeks when I joined the lab um, just pipetting water, actually, which was pretty ridiculous. Literally pipetting water. Literally pipetting water. And um, I think because nobody in the lab trusted me to do anything else, and so I was literally pipetting water and they would weigh it and see if I was accurate or not. So it took me a while to get there. Did you pass? I passed. <laughs> yeah, I passed. And as I learned more techniques, I became really interested in basic science research and thought it was really exciting that we have the opportunity to develop and test new drugs, especially for diseases that are really hard to treat. And so when I was a third-year fellow and needed to start looking for a job, I was, you know, torn at the time. Do I continue with what I thought I was going to do, which was be a clinician educator and stay in academia, or did I want to pursue a physician scientist career? And obviously, I chose the physician scientist path. Miss, you've been spending a lot of time investigating necrotizing enterocolitis, and um, I just wanted to know a little bit more about how you got interested in NEC and what sort of you know, drove you down this uh, path of research? 
Sure. No, thank you for that question. I first became interested in NEC when I was a pediatric resident. And when we would be covering a handful of babies in the NICU, and then you would go home for the day and then come back the next day, and there'd be a new baby in a you know, previous patient that we were taking care of in that bed space. And so when I asked the nurse practitioners, what happened to that baby? Like, where did that baby go? And they said, oh, that baby died overnight from neck. I was completely devastated and shocked. Like, was it something we did? Was it something we didn't do? Was it something that was missed? How can we do better? And so I remember not knowing anything about the disease, but I knew that I was totally terrified of it. And everyone in the NICU was also. And when I started thinking about it more and researching more, like the literature of what we knew on NEC, it was so clear that there wasn't, there was so much we didn't know. And there was like so much that, you know, we still needed to do. And there was no preventative strategies, no treatment, real treatment strategies. And we just started our treatment and hoped for the best. And there were certainly no biomarkers for the disease. It's interesting, even in like the way that we talk about neck totalis, right, which is, you know, like the worst thing that you can say, you know, in terms of um, the severity of this disease. But also, if you think about those words, I mean, it's so unspecific, right? It just means literally, there's just neck everywhere. And that's all we can say. And there's nothing we can do. And that's the end point. So I don't know, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that, that you decided to try to create some clarity. Thank you. Yeah, it's the most just dreadful disease that we study. And like, you know, when I became a neonatology fellow, I really was like, we have to do something, you know, you have to pick a project, obviously, to study um, when you're a fellow. And so I knew that even if I could just, you know, for the next few years, like, just focus on this disease and try to learn a little bit more, I would feel better about it. But then as I was, you know, in the lab and learning more, I became really passionate about, you know, we really need to do better for our babies and their families because, and, you know, for all the healthcare providers taking care of them because everyone's devastated by this disease and it impacts us every day. Like, you know, babies on a neck watch or, you know, a rollout. And so it's just really frustrating. Yeah. Our last bad M&M was for a baby who died of nectotalus. Um, and we're still trying to figure out how we could have done better. But, you know, there isn't a lot. Can, can I ask one question, which is, you know, when you were just starting in the lab, how did you go from pipetting water <laughs> to what was your first experiment? And, you know, and how did you, how, how did that, in, you know, come take you down this path that now you're a pioneer in this disease? Yeah, I think um, in terms of in terms of first experiments, um, I did have to learn how to do intestinal epithelial cell culture, you know, first. So working with cell lines, um, I had to learn how to handle mice, and so that was one of the one of the early things that I needed to learn. Um, we had I joined as I mentioned I joined this pediatric surgery lab, and so. I had to learn our neonatal mouse model of necrotizing or colitis. And so that requires um, hand feeding by gavage, um, neonatal mice, you know, special formula and special microbiome, et cetera. It's a technically challenging procedure. And so, um, so hand feeding the mice and um, those were probably some of the first early experiments. 
Was there somebody in the lab who was helping you, who was like mentoring you and showing you what to do? Because it's never the principal investigator, usually, unless you're joined like a, a small lab. No, I agree. We had this amazing lab family. There was a mm. just a team of PhDs and um, technicians that were teaching me at the bench literally every day, yeah. you know, how to do a Western blot, how to do quantitative PCR, how to do um, immunofluorescence of our intestine and look for different protein markers. And we had, you know, an animal manager that was in charge of the mice that taught us how to hand feed them. So how to draw blood, how to, you know, do all those things that, that we do for the um, in vivo studies. That's awesome, Misty. One of the things I wonder about, and I think it's common to a lot of the diseases that we study is that there's a lot of different ways that babies will develop neck. It's a really heterogeneous disease. And um, I just wonder, like, how do you begin to think about you know, designing a project or even a simple experiment that takes into consideration you know, how heterogeneous the, the process of neck actually is? The biggest thing when you're doing basic science research is you want to develop your model systems, right? And you want to know exactly what outcomes you're looking for in, you know, related to the human condition. So we obviously study the human condition and we get a large volume of patient samples from babies that have neck compared to those babies that didn't develop neck. And then we basically go back to, you know, from the bedside to the bench and incorporate that knowledge into our, you know, mouse models and our in vitro models. And so when it comes to our mouse model of neck, over the years, it's actually evolved into, you know, knowing more about the microbiome, for example, and, you know, specifically taking the microbiome of a baby with neck totalis and adding that to a special um, formula that we feed the mice. And then, you know, learning about innate immunity and how our babies are affected with innate immunity and how we can model that in the mouse, adding um, things to the formula like lipopolysaccharide, um, or LPS, which is the ligand for toll-like receptor 4, which is one of the innate immune receptors, because we know from studies from David Hackham's lab and others that this is a very important immune receptor in the, in the disease. So taking what we know and then applying it to those models, I think, is is really important. I just wonder with that experiment, I think that helps to like think about the heterogeneity of neck. Like, because it's so heterogeneous, it's unlikely that you'll find any single genetic variant that is associated with neck, but you may find subgroups of patients with neck that do have similar genetic variants, but that there's a single one is probably not too likely. I would imagine the same reason for germinal matrix hemorrhage, and it's definitely the same for CDH. But just thinking about that is like thinking about, you know, are there preventative things that you could do to identify patients who are at risk of developing neck or who are in earlier phases of the disease? It seems like you've done a ton of work on this line of thinking. I don't know if you, can you just summarize some of that or how should we think about it? The million dollar, multi-million dollar question is really how can we prevent neck um, or how can we also determine which babies are going to get neck and then, you know, be able to either administer some type of preventative therapy or preventative nutritional therapeutic. Um, that would be the ideal, the ideal thing rather than thinking about like, how can we better treat the disease, which is also 
an area of active investigation. But I will say when I first started in the lab, um, it had been known for decades that the only way that we could protect against neck was to provide um, the infants with maternal breast milk. And there's a lot of great, um, amazing components that are in mother's milk. And um, my fellow project was actually looking at um, individual components of maternal milk and how they can protect the gut from intestinal inflammation, even though there's like so many different things. But at the time, uh, we focused specifically on a growth factor that was present in amniotic fluid because we all know that um, fetuses don't get necrotizing enterocolitis. And so we were looking at commonalities between amniotic fluid and breast milk and one of them is epidermal growth factor, or EGF. And there was a lot of good data coming out that EGF protect against adult intestinal diseases. And so we wanted to focus on that. And that was one of my, one of my first projects um, when I was also trying to figure out how to get breast milk from mice, you know, so we could use them in our experiments. So EGF is, is I think, very intriguing. W- were there other components of breast milk that you think are also... I don't know, that you could highlight, a, yeah, a, a couple of specific components that you think are most effective? After EGF, I studied um, two fecosal lactose. And so that's a, a sugar, human milk oligosaccharide that's present in breast milk. And there's some really great data coming out at the time looking at moms that are secretors of these human milk oligosaccharides or non-secretors. And um, depending on the composition of the breast milk, their infant will be more or less likely um, to get neck. And so, you know, certainly that could be, uh, you know, is one of the risk factors, but we're not doing, you know, personalized nutrition at the bedside and we're not, we're not doing a lot of that, at least in most NICUs. And so, you know, hopefully personalized nutrition is the wave of the future. But one, I'll say one exciting component that we, um, have looked at. And basically, after I had done, you know, my first postdoc in the lab and uh, was looking at mostly pathogenesis of neck and breast milk components, I did a second postdoc with Dr. Jay Coles, who um, is a TEACH 17 expert and pediatric pulmonologist. And um, he studies interleukin 17 and IL-22. And he was looking at um, using IL-22 as an immunotherapeutic strategy for various diseases, not neck, but respiratory diseases. And so when I joined his lab, we wanted to, we wanted to look at using IL-22 as an immunotherapy for neck. And so we've been doing that for the last, I'd say, over five years now, and have done a lot of experiments looking at the prevention and treatment of neck and with IL-22 as an immunotherapy. And we have a patent now, which is really exciting, approved for the use of IL-22 to prevent and treat neck. And we're working with the FDA to get this approved for clinical trials in the NICU. So super exciting. More to come on that. But Can you tell us more about how it works? Yeah, so I, I can. So we, um, we've looked at um, all different, I would say, preventative strategies and timing of administration. Mm-hmm. And it seems there's certainly an optimal time to administer the IL-22. And, you know, preventative is, would, be, would be the best thing. But in terms of, you know, when you're trying to design a clinical trial for these fragile neonates, you can't give everybody the drug. And so 
what we have looked at is, you know, if we can get the drug in within six hours into our neonatal mice, we can attenuate the intestinal inflammation, we can decrease the pro-inflammatory cytokines in the gut um, at the mRNA and protein level. There's um, all the cell death pathways are down-regulated like apoptosis, ferroptosis, um, necroptosis, and um, and really the IL-22 is acting on the epithelial cell and helping the epithelial cell turnover and regeneration, and it seems like he's healing the gut that way. Now, too much of a good thing when you're thinking about immunotherapies is really important, and so we know that you know, the lowest dose possible is going to be important for our babies so that we don't overactivate their already premature immune system. So we've done all kinds of um, toxicity studies as well to make sure that, you know, we're not giving too high of a dose. And we basically take those doses that we've tested and then we can extrapolate them to our babies. I'm going to ask a very selfish question because as a vascular biologist, I've always been fascinated by the vascular component to neck. So do you think are, are any of these components that you mentioned acting directly on the vasculature or you think they're all ask, acting on the intestinal epithelium? I will say for the, when we were looking at um, the HMO studies that we were doing, we did look at um, the intestinal perfusion and specifically like looking at uh we basically intracardiac injected some tomato lectin and then mm-hmm. let it circulate around and then looked at the staining for that as a um, surrogate for um, intestinal perfusion, you know, after the animal, I mean, it's not live, but after the animal uh, was euthanized and, um, and found that in neck, there was, you know, decreased intestinal perfusion, which we see in our babies and certainly see in our mouse model of neck. Um, but when we added the human mucolocosaccharide to their mouse formula, we saw that they had improved intestinal perfusion, suggesting that one of the ways in which, you know, the HMO is protecting is by in, at least enhancing the vasculature. But I'm not a vascular biologist. But I know. Yeah. Those are where my questions are going. Is it vascular proliferation? Is it the barrier function? Anyway. Yeah, we do know in interleukin-22, um, it can improve the barrier function. Mm-hmm. And so we have seen that in vivo. Where we have another model called our neck-on-a-chip model that we are testing various drugs and looking at, you know, different um, tight junctions and, and cell death markers and other items. Misty, I thought it was really cool how you mentioned that finding the balance especially when thinking about immunomodulation is really important. I think a lot of people tend to think of things as kind of being a black or white or on or off switch. And I think it's, I think really helpful to think about how do you restore, you know, a healthy state by maintaining balance of something like that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And also just, um, because we were talking about how neck is heterogeneous and you're talking about doing this translational work, how you have been thinking about trying to identify the patients that are um, the ideal candidates for this type of intervention. Uh, It just seems like so many of the diseases we study in neonatology are heterogeneous. And when you have a good idea, but then apply it to a really broad group of patients, you don't end up finding anything that um, seems to work. But there might be a subgroup of patients that's really benefited. 
one of the most frustrating parts of studying neck is just the heterogeneity of the disease. And it's really the biggest challenge that we face as neck investigators. And I would say one of the ways that we've been trying to address these challenges is by developing the neck biorepository. So I started this in 2017. So I actually started collecting samples when I was um, a fellow long before that, but then moved it into a multi-center neck biorepository in collaboration with the Neck Society because we were really trying to break down the barriers in the field and get a biomarker for the disease. Because as you mentioned, like we don't know which babies will go on to develop neck and we have like the smallest and sickest and then those babies don't get neck and we have twins where one gets neck and one doesn't. Or what about a cardiac? That's the other thing mm-hmm. I've been I've been like waiting to ask is, are you, are you modeling the cardiac kids who get neck at all? We are not modeling cardiac neck in the lab, no. But um, but it is, you know, we mostly model premature neck in the lab. I will say that some personalized, now that we're a little off topic, but some personalized approaches that we're, we're looking at use, using our neck on a chip model which I can talk more about. So we obtain pieces of intestine for our biorepository and for our experiments. We obtain pieces of intestine that are resected for neck or any indication. And so babies, you know, whether they're preterm babies or babies that are um, term or late preterm that have what we call cardiac neck, we obtain pieces of intestine and then utilize them in the lab. So we can isolate the stem cells out. We can isolate the epithelial cells and the immune cells for various parts of the experiment. And we can grow up these little mini guts in the lab called aneroids. And you can do experiments directly on the aneroids, or you can take those aneroids and then dissociate them a little bit and put them on a microfluidic chip that mimics like the peristalsis of the intestine and the continuous flow. Like there's continuous media flow that you know, mimics the intestine and peristalsis, the tri- the chips get stretched um, in their like module in the um, incubator. And so you can, after several days, um, there's, uh, you can see that there's um, an intact epithelium. You can see intestinal villi developing, which is really cool. And so once you have like all those tight junctions and the gut barrier in the chip has developed, you can then add on, you know, patient microbiome or, you know, feed the chip various things um, or test different therapies. So we have an R01 that is focused on um, specifically um, testing various therapies in the chip um, to see how we can make the gut stronger in the lab, um, but utilizing patient samples that um, have either already been affected by neck or, or just our premature intestine that comes out for other other reasons like volvulus or atresia, et cetera. I love that just hearing about how you're, you know, tackling these problems, which I think have, have prevented people from making progress in this in a long time for a long time. Definitely trying. I think the biorepository is really one of the one of the things that is helping the field break down some of these barriers because as we talked about a little bit, neck is even though we see it a lot at each center, it is very heterogeneous and it's it's considered a rare disease. And so even though we see it a lot, it is considered rare. And so there aren't that many patients at any one center that are 
you know, who are getting neck. And, um, and so we need to be studying them all because the disease is so heterogeneous. So luckily we have, um, we have 10 centers and I found it easy to get this started to collaborate with my friends who also study neck and inspire me to do better. And, um, we have developed this just amazing infrastructure across the nation to obtain samples and train up coordinators and really um, collaborate, write grants, and really try to get at, you know, which babies are at the highest risk and then how can we develop biomarkers. It's awesome to hear how you kind of personally are, you know, coming after neck from multiple different angles to try to, you know, try to figure it out using a lot of different approaches. And also like you have this national group of people who are, you know, similarly interested in trying to better understand the underlying mechanisms responsible for neck, but come up with novel ways of thinking about it. And I think that's really inspiring to um, young physician scientists who are, you know, trying to develop a research interest of their own. So it's uh, really great to hear how that has been working. Are there other challenges you've faced that you feel like are, you know, interesting to cover here that people would benefit from knowing more about? I think we all face a lot of challenges and our work is challenging, but just curious to hear what you think. I think just in science, there's so many different challenges that we have to encounter and um, and overcome, and it makes us really resilient. I would say this disease humbles us every day and, um, you know, keeps us going because we have to do better. And so thinking about that and, um, you know, how devastated our team gets when, you know, we lose a baby that, ha- or that has nectotalus, you know, we have to think about it in the lab and like what happened. And like Betsy was saying earlier when, you know, they just had an M&M on a baby. I mean, we really have to look at every single case and can we do better? Is there anything we could have done differently? And always the answer is no. And so we have to do better in the lab and we have to do better at figuring out, you know, what can we learn from our patient samples, for example. And so I would say, you know, hypothesis-driven science is like what we're, we were all trained to do. And with this disease, you kind of have to flip that all around and just say like, you know, we have to get samples and take an unbiased approach to everything. And, you know, with as many like next-gen sequencing techniques are out there now and there's mm-hmm. new, new techniques every day, applying those techniques and, you know, to the samples that we have been so fortunate to obtain, I think is the way we're going to learn more about the disease. But I think, I think the biggest challenge is, you know, after you overcome like getting the samples and, you know, is really what to do with them and then how to judiciously um, make sure that we're getting the most information out of that, you know, precious patient specimen. I think one of the things that we struggle with a little bit is that we're in a similar position where we really need to be doing a lot of hypothesis generating work, but we're expected to do, you know, Mm -hmm. hypothesis driven work. And so um, just curious, how do you think about those two issues? Um, Just thinking about, you know, writing a new grant uh, that usually needs to be centered on, you know, a central hypothesis, but is going to actually help you generate new ideas. How do you think about that? I think, 
when you're thinking about grant, different grant mechanisms and what you're going to submit, um, certainly the NIH, we've been really fortunate to have NIH funding that has been focused on hypothesis, you know, um, driven science, I would say, and really mechanistic studies. I think there are other funding mechanisms that you can look at that, you know, may be hypothesis generating. So we've been really fortunate to collaborate with just amazing, um, brilliant scientists across the country. And in collaboration with Scott Magnus at UNC, Cami Martin at Cornell, um, Troy Markle at Indiana, um, and Amy here at Baylor and the Next Society, we were really just so blessed to get this grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which was really a funding mechanism that was focused on, you know, um, single cell RNA sequencing and looking specifically at pediatric inflammatory diseases. And um, we were one of five groups out of like close to 300 in the world that were awarded this grant. And so, so that's one of those funding mechanisms that is just incredible. And they let you, you know, sequence a bunch of the samples and um, it's really going to be hypothesis generating for all of us and, you know, for all of us that study neck for the, the next, hopefully several decades, but hopefully we can cure this disease before then. Yeah. But I mean, I, I did want to offer that like as another kind of encouraging story that, that I do find that if you have a track record of productivity, as a neonatal physician scientist, and you're studying something that impacts babies, I found that like if you can write a good grant and just show them that yes, I I can do science, I can I can do experiments, I can write papers, I can get them accepted. Um, that there's you know a lot of urgency, and I think there's a lot of passion for our topic, right? Like what's better than 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 preventing you know a, a terrible you know certainly mortality to a baby, but also the morbidity that happens, right? If a baby is short gut, et cetera. You know, in, in germinal matrix hemorrhage, if a baby has you know neurological deficits for life, I just find that once you get to a point as a physician scientist in neonatology, that I found the funding not as difficult to acquire as I think other scientists because the topic is fairly novel and the patient could not be more compelling. So I did want to, you know, highlight that aspect of your, of your journey that like once, once you get there, that the funding can be, I don't know, sometimes things fall into place with neonatology. It is true. I mean, who doesn't want to fund babies? You know, our, our lab motto is that we're saving the babies from neck and that's what we truly believe. And uh, we've been really fortunate to have amazing funding sources over the years. Your story is super compelling. I just wondered, uh, sort of thinking in the you know near future, uh, what's inspiring you now? Oh my gosh, so many, so many things. I mean, are the patients and families inspire us every day to do better? And there's so many questions in this field that really need to be answered. And you know, what gets me out of bed in the morning is the ability to do amazing basic science and translational work in our lab with a fantastic team that's really dedicated to improving outcomes for babies. And I get to collaborate with a bunch of amazing, smart, brilliant people across the country, which is always, always awesome. And then one of my other hats that I wear is I'm the co-program director 
of our pediatric residency and fellowship physician scientist training program. And I love that I get to inspire and foster the next generation of pediatric physician scientists. And so um, now we have this incredible podcast with the two of you to be able to also do that for our field. So it's really, really incredible. And I love to see it all playing out. If you had to like draw a picture, like you're saying, like a model, like an illustration or a schematic, what are the key factors that like drive neck pathogenesis that you think about? In terms of neck pathogenesis, our, I would say, working hypothesis of what we think happens is that, you know, really comes from the microbiome data in humans is that 48 to 72 hours prior to a diagnosis of neck, these babies will develop um, a microbial dysbiosis in the intestine which is a bloom, basically, of pathogenic bacteria. And we don't know if it's necessarily a cause or a consequence of the disease, because, again, there's no good biomarkers. But what we think happens is that um, bacterial dysbiosis in the setting of a preterm intestine, for example, can lead to activation of toll-like receptor 4, that innate immune receptor that we talked about previously, and what happens when that TLR4 gets activated is downstream. There's a pro-inflammatory response that in an, the context of a premature gut, there's an exaggerated inflammatory response. And so when that inflammation goes unchecked, it can lead to, you know, all kinds of what we see at the bedside, like cytokine storm and a baby seems like they're having, you know, sepsis and developing, can develop septic shock type appearance. And um, at that time, like in the intestine is, you know, dying and those epithelial cells are dying. And so whether they die fast or slow or what is the mechanism that um, determines how quickly the disease progresses, we don't, we don't really fully understand at all. Um, but in the context of a leaky gut, when you have that um, bacterial bloom, those bacteria basically translocate across the gut barrier. And that aids in this, you know, big pro-inflammatory response that we see clinically. Yeah. And the pneumatosis, literally, right? And the pneumatosis, yeah. Yep. And the, yeah, the pneumatosis, the only biomarker that we have that eludes us all sometimes. Yeah, oh, that's true. Portal venous gas, right? The worst phone call you can get from the radiologist who looked at the film that you didn't catch. Uh, doctor, there was some portal venous gas on this. Yeah. yeah. The next morning. Thank you for the help. I can I have one I asked one random question also. Like, um, you moved. And I just wonder, well, diseases where there's uh such an, you know, significant or central component of the immune system, it seems like um when you relocate your your mouse colony in particular, that um the microbiome is really different. And I wondered if, if that was a problem for you or if you learned anything from that or was it an issue? It was an issue, actually, when I moved from the University of Pittsburgh to Washington University in St. Louis. And um, our mouse colony, like we moved the entire mouse colony and the microbiome of the animal facility was different. And even though, you know, we moved the same mice, et cetera, um, the food is a little bit different that the you know, parent mice eat and, uh, and that can affect, um, the offspring as well. And so, so we did have to make some modifications to the model. So we, we started doing them a little bit smaller, you know, a little bit younger. And so to make sure that their intestines were 
just a little bit less mature than previously. And, um, and then we did play with the microbiome of the formula that we added, for example, um, or that we added to the formula. Um, so we played with the microbiome. We started adding lipopolysaccharide because we really wanted to titrate the severity of the disease to what we see at the bedside. And so, especially when we were doing a lot of those studies for pre-IND with the FDA, like we wanted to make sure that we had neck-related mortality in our mouse model. And so we could see that severe intestinal inflammation and intestinal perforations, for example, that, you know, that we see in humans. And so how can we make the gut stronger? How can we protect against the intestinal inflammation that's seen? And really, how can we prevent neck-related mortality are like the big questions that we were going after. So yes, after after you move, it can affect several model systems and it did affect ours. And we worked hard to overcome it and did. It's cool how just like a, what seems like a challenge like that can often open doors for you know, new ways of thinking about the central problem or the disease in general. So it's always interesting to learn more about that. Absolutely. And as you get, as you, you know, enroll different patients and get different samples, you then can bring them to the lab and see how they behave in your mouse model or your in vitro models as well. And we try to do that often. This has been awesome, Misty. I I think in the future, we would love to hear and I mean, this is great. You covered a lot of your science and how you got to study neck in such a detailed way. Um, one of the other things I think we would really love to talk with you more about is your your leadership roles, um, where you are now, and just in general. Um, but today we'll just mainly stay focused on the on the science. Betsy, I think you might have one last question to ask. Did you, did you want to ask that? Yeah. Uh, thanks again, Misty. You know, I've learned so much about neck and it's been an honor to get to, you know, ask you about the thing that, yeah, that you are, you know, staying up late nights and, and trying to solve, right, for all of these small lives. We wanted to end on something fun, kind of on a, on a lighter note. Could you tell us what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given in your scientific career? When I was first, like, really trying to decide which career path to take, whether it was going to be a clinician educator or be a physician scientist. Uh, My division chief at the time, Dr. Gary Silverman, he said to me, well, why just save one baby when you can save them all with your research? And I thought that was pretty profound and inspiring. And um, it was really like at that moment that I decided that I was going to dedicate my whole career to studying this disease until we can cure it completely. And uh, we never have to see another baby with neck again. So that's the best piece of advice I I gave and it changed my whole career trajectory. So um, I really, it was inspiring for me. Yeah, well, we're grateful to him for seeing your potential and your brilliance and making sure that (laughs) you went into something that was going to help the most amount of babies. Uh, yeah, I mean, David, do you want to wrap us up? Or I don't have any further comments other than to walk out and think about the fact that, Misty, I feel like you're about a decade ahead of me with uh, neck versus germinal matrix hemorrhage. So I've been so, um, no, I think so, so stimulated by thinking about how I could adapt some of your um, ideas and models to starting a very different disease. I would love that. Happy to help in any way. 
Yeah, I just want to say thank you also, Misty. That was really great. Thanks for taking the time with us. Um, and uh, thanks to our audience. So again, this is the At The Bench podcast. Um, please come back again next time um, where we'll be interviewing me and I'll tell you a little bit about <laughs> my work investigating diaphragmatic hernia. So thanks so much for tuning in and hope to uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.